Section 7 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 2, Part 3. The Queen superintended the education of her daughter, the little Princess of Orange, whilst she was in Holland, retaining her always near her, while she pursued her studies under various masters. The young Prince of Orange, her spouse, was likewise still under tuition. The queen very wisely remained with her daughter till she was accustomed to the manners and customs of her new country. This alliance proved a most fortunate one for the royal family of Stuart, as the young princess became infinitely beloved by the people of Holland. It does not appear that any jealousy was manifested by them, lest Henrietta should imbue her young daughter with Catholic predilections. The unfortunate mother of Queen Henrietta died in misery at Cologne the same winter. It had been the intention of the Queen to continue her journey up the Rhine, to attend her parents' sickbed, but the Dutch burgomasters interfered and wholly prevented her, and she, fearful of compromising the advantages she had gained, dared not pursue her intentions, lest her husband's interest should suffer severely. When the queen had obtained all the stores possible in Holland, she bade farewell to her little daughter, and leaving her under the personal care of her mother-in-law, the Princess of Orange, re-embarked for England, almost on the anniversary of her departure the preceding year, February 2nd, 1642-43. She sailed from Shoveling in a first-rate English ship called the Princess Royal, and was accompanied by eleven transports, filled with ammunition and stores, for the assistance of the king. Her fleet was convoyed by the Dutch Admiral, Von Tromp. So tremendous a northeast gale began to blow, directly the queen and her ladies had embarked on board this fleet, that they were tossed on the stormy billows nine days, expecting death hourly. The ladies wept and screamed perpetually, but the queen never lost her high spirits. To all the lamentations around her, the daughter of Henry the Great replied gaily, Comfort yourselves, mon chers. Queens of England are never drowned. The ladies suspended their wailings to reflect, and recollected that such a case had never occurred, and were greatly consoled. This conversation is declared by a French writer to have passed on deck while the queen was leaning on the rudder, when she had persuaded her train to leave the discomforts of the cabin for a little fresh air. Indeed, the scene below, as related by the queen herself, was anything but inviting. When the tempest blew heavily, and the ship labored and pitched, they were tied in small beds, in all the horrors of seasickness. At the time the storm was at its worst, all the queen's attendants, even the officers, crowded into her cabin, and insisted on confessing themselves to the capuchins of her suite, believing death would ensue every moment. These poor priests were as ill as anyone, and were unable to be very attentive. Therefore the penitents shouted out their sins aloud, in the hearing of every one, in order to obtain absolution on the spur of the moment. The queen, having no terrors of her own to distract her, amused herself with remarking this extraordinary scene, and made a sly comment on what she heard, saying, that she supposed that the extremity of their fears took away the shame of confessing much misdeeds in public. Her gay spirits were not then broken, and she declared that the absurdities she witnessed in that voyage, at times, made her laugh excessively, although, like the others, she could not help expecting the ship to go to the bottom every moment. 
when any eating or drinking was going forward the attempts to serve her in state and the odd disasters that occurred both to her and her servitors tumbling one over the other with screams and confusion were so ridiculous that no alarm could control her mirth after a fortnight's pitching and tossing the good ship was beaten back on the wild shoveling coast and the queen landed safely at the port close to the hague from whence they had set out after a few days rest and refreshment the undaunted henrietta again set sail minus two ships which she had lost in the storm this time she had a quick and prosperous voyage and anchored in burlington bay february twentieth sixteen forty two to forty three after an absence of a year all but two days she did not attempt to land till the twenty-second when a gallant squadron of one thousand cavaliers appeared in sight on the hills under their protection by land and that of von tromp by sea the queen came on shore at burlington quay where on the same day the landing of her stores commenced with the utmost celerity at five in the morning the queen was roused by the thundering of cannon and the rattling of shot five ships of war commanded by the parliamentary admiral batten which had been previously cruising off newcastle had entered burlington bay in the night and by peep of dawn commenced an active cannonade on the house where the queen was sleeping the parliament having voted her guilty of high treason for obtaining supplies of money and arms for her distressed husband their heroic admiral was doing his best to take her life one of their ships says the queen in a letter she wrote at this juncture to the king did me the favor of flanking upon the house where i slept and before i was out of bed the cannon-balls whistled so loud about me that my company pressed me earnestly to go out of that house the cannon having totally beaten down the neighbors houses two cannon bullets falling from the top to the bottom of the house where i was so clothed as well as in haste i could be i went on foot to some little distance from the town of burlington and got into the shelter of a ditch like that at newmarket whither before i could get the cannon bullets fell thick about us and a servant was killed within seventy paces of me the queen does not venture here to mention to her husband her blameworthy temerity regarding her lapdog though she confessed this fine adventure to madame de motteville she had an ugly old dog named mitt whom she loved very much when she was in the middle of the burlington street she remembered that she had left mitt at the mercy of the parliamentary admiral she instantly turned on her steps rushed upstairs into her chamber and caught up the animal which was reposing on her bed and carried her off in safety after this adventure the queen and her ladies gained the ditch she described and crouched down in it while the cannon played furiously over their heads one dangerous ball says the queen grazed the edge of the ditch and covered us with earth and stones the firing lasted till the ebbing of the tide von tromp whose ships were too large to approach the quay to defend the queen attacked the valiant batten in his retreat and as this admiral had no support from the yorkshire land forces he sheered off to report his deeds to his masters the queen's transports then landed the rest of their stores and her majesty established herself in peace and quiet in the neighborhood of burlington where she remained at least ten days a yorkshire tradition alone mentions the abode of the queen during this delay which was unavoidable whilst her stores and cannon were put in order of march it is said that her majesty established her headquarters at boynton hall near burlington the seat of sir william strickland 
who, although he had accepted the honor of a baronetcy from King Charles, so recently as the year 1640, was a staunch leader of the Puritan party, and had rendered himself very obnoxious to the court by his political conduct. His brother, Walter, had recently been ambassador from the Parliament to the States of Holland, where he had fiercely argued against the Queen, being furnished there with the munitions of war. Notwithstanding, the Queen asked and received hospitality and shelter, for herself and her train, at the native hall of these inimical brethren. During Her Majesty's entertainment, a grand display was made of heavy family plate for the honor of the house. This the Queen, observing, took occasion at her departure, when she returned thanks for her entertainment, to say, that she feared it would be thought that she was about to make an ungracious return for the courtesies she had received, but unhappily the king's affairs had, through the disaffection and want of duty on the part of some of those who ought to have been among his most loyal supporters, come to that pass, that he required pecuniary aid. The parliament had refused to grant the supplies requisite for maintaining the honor of the crown, and therefore money must be obtained by other means, and she was sorry to be under the necessity of taking possession of the plate she had seen during her visit for his majesty's use. She should, she added, consider it as a loan, as she trusted the king would very soon compose the disorders in those parts when she would restore the plate, or at any rate its value in money, to Sir William Strickland, and in the meantime she would leave at Boynton Hall her own portrait, both as a pledge of her royal intentions and a memorial of her visit. Who it was that performed the part of host at Boynton Hall to the Queen is uncertain, as it appears that both Sir William and his brother were absent. It is possible that there were ladies of the family not so inimical to the royal party, since the mother of Sir William Strickland and his brother was a Wentworth, and their grandmother a daughter of the Catholic family of the Stricklands, in Sizer Castle in Westmoreland. The portrait left by the Queen is regarded as a very fine work of art, and was probably painted during her late visit to the Court of Orange. It is the size of life, and represents her as very pretty and delicate, in features and complexion. Her hair is ornamented with flowers at the back of the head, and is arranged in short, thick, frizzled curls, according to the fashion, called at the Court of France, Tete de Mouton. Her dress is very elegant, simple white, with open sleeves drawn up, with broad green ribbons. The bodice is like the present mode, laced across the stomacher with gold chains, and ornamented with rows of pendant pearls on each side. The family plate was never restored, neither was Henrietta ever in a condition to redeem her promise of making a compensation for it in money, but her portrait has, in process of time, become at least of equal value. Unfortunately, Boynton Hall was soon afterwards completely pillaged by a marauding party, who followed on the Queen's track, and Sir William Strickland and his brother became confirmed roundheads. At this period, Henrietta had recourse to the painful expedient of soliciting personal loans for the service of her royal husband, not only from the female nobility of England, but from private families whom she had reason to believe well affected to the cause of loyalty. To such as supplied her with these aids, she was accustomed to testify her gratitude by the gift of a ring, or some other trinket from her own cabinet. But when the increasing exigencies of the king's affairs compelled her to sell or pawn in Holland the whole of her plate and most of her jewels, for his use, 
she adopted an ingenious device by which she was enabled, at a small expense, to continue her gifts to her friends, and in a form that rendered these more precious to the recipient parties, because they had immediate reference to herself. Whilst in Holland, she had a great many rings, lockets, and bracelet clamps, made with her cipher, the letters HMR, Henrietta Maria Regina, in very delicate filigree gold, curiously entwined in a monogram, laid on a ground of crimson velvet, covered with thick crystal, cut like a table diamond, and set in gold. These were called the Queen's Pledges, and presented by her to any person who had lent her money, or rendered her any particular service, with an understanding that, if presented to Her Majesty at any future time, when fortune smiled on the royal cause, it would command either repayment of the money advanced, or some favor from the queen that would amount to an ample equivalent. Many of these interesting testimonials are in existence, and in families where the tradition has been forgotten, have been regarded as amulets which were to secure good fortune to the wearer. One of these royal pledges, a small bracelet clasp, has been an heirloom in the family of the author of this life of Henrietta, and there is a ring with the same device, in the possession of Philip Darrell, Esquire, of Cales Hill in Kent, which was presented to his immediate ancestor by that queen. Whilst the queen waited in the neighborhood of Burlington, she did a great deal of business in distributing arms to those gentlemen of Yorkshire, who were loyally disposed, and in winning over many influential persons to the king's party. Sir Hugh Chamonley delivered Scarborough Castle to his majesty, and declared himself a cavalier, whilst her majesty sojourned at Burlington. Many other gentlemen, quite captivated by the adventurous valor of their queen, resolved on the same course, among others the Hothams, whose defection has so infinitely injured the king. A complete reaction seems to have taken place in the royal cause in Yorkshire. It arose, perhaps, from the following circumstance. While the queen yet remained in the vicinity of her landing place, one of the captains of the five parliamentary vessels which bombarded the queen's house at Burlington was seized on shore. He was tried by a military tribunal, and as it was proved that he was the man who directed the cannon which had so nearly missed destroying her, he was condemned to be hanged. The queen happened to meet the procession when he was conducted to execution, and she insisted on knowing what it meant. She was told that King Charles's loyal subjects were about to punish the man who had taken aim at her chamber in Burlington. Ah, said the queen, but I have forgiven him all that, and he did not kill me. He shall not be put to death on my account. The captain was set at liberty by her commands, and she entreated him not to persecute one who would not harm him when she could. The captain, adds the narrative, was so deeply touched by her generosity that he came over to the royal cause, and, moreover, persuaded several of his shipmates to join him. At last, her gallant escort of two thousand cavaliers arrived from York, sent by the Earl of Newcastle, headed by the heroic Marquis of Montrose, and the Queen set out in triumph, crossing the Wolds to Malton, on her march to York, guarding six pieces of cannon, two large mortars, and two hundred and fifty wagons loaded with money. Her army gathered as she advanced, and when she reached York, it had swelled into a formidable force. She herself gave an animated description of her military progress. She rode on horseback throughout the march as general. She ate her meals in sight of the army, without seeking shelter from sun or rain. 
She spoke frankly to her soldiers, who seemed infinitely delighted with her. She took a town, too, by the way, which truly, adds she, was not defended quite so obstinately as Antwerp, when besieged by the Duke of Parma, but it was a considerable one, and very useful to the royal cause. The Queen wrote from York as follows. Queen Henrietta Maria to Charles I. York, March 20th, 1643. My dear heart, I need not tell you from whence this bearer comes. I will only tell you that the propositions he brings are good. I believe there is not yet time to put them in execution. Therefore find some means to send them back, which may not discontent them, and do not tell who gave you this advice. Sir Hugh Chalmonley is come in with a troop of horse to kiss my hand. The rest of his people he left at Scarborough, with a ship laden with arms, which the ships of the Parliament had brought thither at Scarborough, so she is ours. The rebels have quitted Tadcaster upon our sending forces to Weatherby, but the rebels are returned with twelve hundred men. We send more forces to drive them out, though those we have already at Weatherby are sufficient. But we fear, as they have all their forces thereabout, lest they have some design, for they have quitted Selby and Kaywood, the last of which they have burnt. Between this and tomorrow, we shall know the issue of the business, and I will send you an express. I am the more careful to advertise you of what you do, that you and we may find means to have passports to send, and I wonder that, on the cessation, you have not demanded that you might send in safety. This shows my love. The cessation the Queen mentions was a treaty of peace which the Parliament was negotiating with the King. If they had no other terms to offer than those the Queen recapitulates here, no one can wonder at her indignation regarding them. Clarendon blames her exceedingly for her opposition to the treaty. She must speak for herself as follows. I understand today from London that they, the Parliament, will have no cessation of arms, and that they treat in the beginning, that is in the first two articles, of surrender of forts, ships, and ammunition, and afterwards of the disbanding of the king's army. Certainly I wish a peace more than any, and that with greater reason than any one else. I would desire the disbanding of the perpetual parliament first, and certainly the rest will be easy afterwards. This parliament, it must be remembered, had voted itself lifelong, an encroachment at once on the constitution of England, far more astounding than anything that King Charles had done. I do not say this, resumes the Queen, of my own head alone, for generally both those who are for you and against you in this country wish an end of it, and I am certain that, if you do not demand it at first, it will not be granted. Hull is yours and all of Yorkshire, which is a thing to consider of, and for my particular, if you make a peace, and disband your army before there is an end of this perpetual parliament, I am absolutely resolved to go to France, not being willing to fall again into the hands of those people, being well assured that, if the power remains with them, it will not be well for me in England. Remember what I have written you, in three precedent letters, and be more careful of me than you have been, or at least dissemble it, that is, affect to be more careful of me. Adieu, the man hastens me, so that I can say no more. In a fragment of a letter from York, the Queen notices other naval forces taken from the parliamentary party. You know now by Elliot the issue of the business at Tadcaster, 
since that we almost lost Scarborough. While Sir Hugh Chomley was there, Brown Bushel would have rendered that place up to Parliament, but Sir Hugh having noticed of it, is gone with our forces, and hath retaken it, and hath desired a lieutenant and forces of ours to put within it, and in exchange we should take his garrison. Sir Hugh Chomley hath also taken two pinnacles from Hotham, which brought forty-four men to put within Scarborough for the Parliament, with ten pieces of cannon, four barrels of powder, and four of bullets. This is all our news. Our army marches tomorrow to put an end to Fairfax's excellency, and will make an end of this letter this third of April. I must add that I have had no news of you since Parsons. April 3rd, 1643. As of making an end of Fairfax's excellency, that was sooner said than done. This was another instance of those shouts before victory, into which the queen's sanguine and ardent temperament perpetually betrayed her. The royal pair could not meet till Fairfax and Essex were cleared out of their path, achievements which required some months' time and several minor victories to effect, and the queen was actually detained on the northeast coast of England nearly six months, while the king and Prince Rupert were fighting and skirmishing round Oxford and the mid-counties. At last, the rebels were fairly beat out of the field, and the queen and her army advanced to Newark, from whence she wrote the following letter in the most triumphant spirits. Queen Henrietta Maria to Charles I, Newark, June 27, 1643. My dear heart, I received just now your letter by my Lord Seville, who found me ready to go away, staying but for one thing, for which you may well pardon me two days stop. It is to have Hull and Lincoln. Young Hotham, having been put in prison by the order of Parliament, is escaped, and hath sent two hundred and sixty, that he would cast himself into his arms, and that Hull and Lincoln should be rendered. Young Hotham hath gone to his father, and two hundred and sixty Newcastle waits for your answer. I think I shall go hence, on Friday or Saturday. I shall sleep at Wharton, and from thence go on to Ashby, where we will resolve what way to take, and I will stay there a day, because the march of the day before will have been somewhat great, and also to learn how the enemy marches. All their forces of Nottingham at present, being gone towards Leicester and Derby, which makes us believe that they intend to intercept our passage. As soon as we have resolved, I will send you word. At this present, I think it best to let you know the state in which we march, and what force I leave behind me for the safety of Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire. I leave two thousand foot, and wherewithal to arm five hundred more, and twenty companies of horse, and all this to be under Charles Cavendish, whom the gentlemen of the country have desired me not to carry with me, for he desired extremely not to go. The enemy have left in Nottingham one thousand garrison. I carry with me three thousand foot, thirty companies of horse and dragoons, six pieces of cannon, and two mortars. Harry German commands the forces which go with me, as colonel of my guard. Sir Alexander Leslie, the foot under him, Sir John Gerard, the horse, and Robin Legg, the artillery, and her she majesty, generalissima over all, and extremely diligent am I, with 150 wagons of baggage to govern in case of battle. With all this valor, her she majesty generalissima, as Henrietta calls herself, has an eye to dangers that might occur by the way, from the Earl of Essex, whom the king was doing his best to keep in check, for she adds, 
Have a care that no troop of Essex's army accommodate us. I hope that for the rest we shall be strong enough, for at Nottingham we have the experience that one of our troops have beaten six of theirs and made them fly. I have received your proclamation or declaration, which I wish had not been made, being extremely disadvantageous to you, for you show too much apprehension, and do not do what you have resolved upon. Farewell, my dear heart. Before the queen departed for Newark, the ladies of that town brought up a petition, entreating her majesty not to march from Newark till Nottingham was taken. The right of petitioning royalty was a perfect mania at that time. It had been a point of dispute between the king and the parliament, and all sorts and conditions of persons, of both sexes, thought proper to dictate by petition the public measures they thought best to be pursued. Women were especially active in petitioning at this era. Her Majesty gave the ladies of Newark, in her answer, a sly hint on feminine duties in these words. Ladies, affairs of this nature are not in our sphere. I am commanded by the king to make all haste to him that I can. You will receive this advantage, at least, by my answer. Though I cannot grant your petition, you may learn by my example to obey your husbands. As this fine petition had been got up without the knowledge of the husbands of the Newark dames, a more provoking answer could not have been devised. Not that Queen Henrietta could boast of being the most submissive wife under the sun, as some phrases in her epistles above can testify. At last, all invidious obstacles were cleared from Her Majesty's path by the valor of the king, his nephews, and the Oxford cavaliers. The queen's name formed the battle cry of this desultory warfare. The word of the cavalier charge was, God for Queen Mary, the name by which Henrietta Maria was then known in England. The loyalists likewise mentioned their queen in the party songs, popular in the mid-counties, which were founded on some recent successes. God save the king, the queen, the prince also, with all loyal subjects, both high and both low. The roundheads can pray for themselves, ye know, which nobody can deny. Plague take Pym and all his peers, huzzah for Prince Rupert and his cavaliers. When they come here, those hounds will have fears, which nobody can deny. God save Prince Rupert and Maurice withal, for they gave the roundheads a great downfall, and knocked their noddles against Worcester Wall, which nobody can deny. It was in the Vale of Keenton, near his own victorious ground of Edgehill, that Charles met with transport, his adored Henrietta. Such a meeting was some atonement for their lives of ill fortune. The king praised the high courage and faithful affection of her, whom he proudly and emphatically called his wife. The mid-counties had been so thoroughly cleared of the insurgents, that the king was only accompanied by his own regiment, and by Prince Rupert's horse, when he marched to meet the queen. Just before the triumphant entry of the king and queen into the loyal city of Oxford, they received the news of one of Prince Rupert's dashing, victorious skirmishes, which added to the exhilaration of the festival with which the Oxford Cavaliers welcomed them. A large silver medal was struck at Oxford to commemorate this event, and the queen was received in that beautiful and loyal city with the most enthusiastic admiration as the heroine of the royal party. Her triumphs, however, replete as they are with incident which develops her character, are regretted by some of the king's friends. Clarendon declares that the queen was so much elated at the flush of success, 
which her supplies had been the means of obtaining, that she would not hear of any means of terminating the civil war, excepting by conquest. Thus by her influence, the opportunity of making peace was lost. This was a great error, a defect in moral judgment, to which heroes and heroines are extremely prone. It is doubtless one of the mistakes for which Queen Henrietta blamed herself with unsparing severity, and is the reason why, in her narrative, she passes over the particulars of her sojourn at Oxford with painful brevity. End of section 7